0: There are stories where changing the past is really, really bad. Uh, Sort of the butterfly effect idea that if you just step on a butterfly in the Cretaceous period, if you come back to the present day, some kind of fascist will have become president. Um, That's literally what happens in the original Ray Bradbury story where the butterfly effect idea comes out of.
1: The Conversations at the Interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the Internet. They help people start Internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. We are, uh, we're we're really honored to have uh, Annalie back for her second time speaking for us uh, for her new book. She wrote a time travel book just for uh, no. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, we're, we're, this is a it's it's a it's a great book, and it's uh, it, we're gonna have a great discussion for you tonight. Um, Annalee Newitz is a San Francisco-based writer of both science fiction and nonfiction. Um, and uh, They are the authors of uh, the, uh, the latest book, uh, Future Another Timeline, as well as the Lambda Literary Award-winning uh, novel, Autonomous. Uh, as a science journalist, um, you can find Annalise writing in uh, New York Times, New Scientist, and um, the uh, Popular Science and Ars Technica, amongst many others. And you may also be familiar with Annalise's work from the... Uh, Actually, a Hugo Award-winning podcast. I didn't. I, this is me. I didn't realize that Hugo was recognizing podcasts now. About time, uh, Hugo. So our Hugo winner. Uh, but but uh, our opinions are correct, which is fantastic. And with Charlie Jane Anders, another great local author. Um, so uh, tonight, to uh, to to explain to us how it is we're in the wrong timeline. Please uh, join me, give me a big round of applause to our speaker, Annalee Newitz.
0: It's great to be back and talk to you guys about another um, thing that I made up about science. Um, So I promise one day I'll be back here to talk about actual science. so what I wanna to do today is um, talk a little bit about the novel that I've just written. Um, let's see if I can make this, haha. So I just wrote this novel which is about time travel just for the long now. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about the process of writing it um, and how I did the world building for it because building an alternate timeline and building a time machine uh, we're actually a, a kind of a long, interesting process. Um, but then what I want to really get into is the question of why we keep returning to stories about time travel? And what is it, what are the kinds of human stories that we can tell when we talk about time travel? What are some of the themes that are brought up again and again? and maybe why, right now, we all have this feeling that, Uh, Maybe we're in the wrong timeline, and maybe time travelers have something to do with that weird moment when the Cubs won in 2017. Um, 2016, sorry. See? Alternate timeline. Um, So my novel is uh, about time travel, as I said, but it's also really about two people. Um, And I'll be reading to you a little bit from it, and so you can meet them. Um, But one of them is a time traveler, her name is Tess. Um, It's set in a world where time travel is mundane. So everyone knows about time travel. There's no secret time machine. Uh, Everyone has been doing time travel for a very long time. And so Tess works as a scientist, and her job is partly to use this machine to go back in time. Um, And she is trying to uh, change the past, which is not considered to be a very... um, it's not really considered to be something that academics should do. It's a little bit um, outside the polite norms of of academia. Uh, And she's going back to the 19th century, and she discovers, very early in the novel that she's actually in a war against another group that's also trying to change history. And it's a group of men who have been deleting women's reproductive rights from the timeline. They've been figuring out uh, crafty ways uh, to to make that happen. So Tess lives in a world uh, where abortion is not legal in the United States. And so Tess keeps crossing paths with the other main character named Beth, Um, Beth is not a time traveler. In fact, she's very annoyed that she has to live in real time through high school in 1992 in Irvine, California, where I grew up, which is a terrible suburb in Southern California. Um, And so she is just aching to be done with living there and to get out, and she starts meeting this person who is Tess, and Tess is telling her things about how she should avoid doing certain things and how she needs to change her life. Um, And so, the one thing that these two characters have in common, aside from the fact that they keep having these weird meetings in 1992, is that they're both absolutely in love with a punk rock band called Grape Ape. And this is something that they they have in common with each other. Um, So, I'll talk about Grape Ape in a second. We'll definitely get there and I'll, I'll show you some Grape Ape videos. But I wanted to start by talking about science. So when I first set out to do this novel, because I am a science journalist, um, and because my previous novel, Autonomous, was considered to be hard science fiction, which is just kind of a fake term for science fiction that sounds science-y to us. Um, It sounds like it could be plausibly true. Um, I was like, okay, this is what I'm gonna do. I am gonna write the most hard science fiction time travel novel that's ever been written. It's gonna be so awesome. I'm gonna blow everyone away with my scientific acumen. So I called my friend, Sean Carroll, who um, has just written a great uh, book about the origin of time and space, um, which is called Something Deeply Hidden, and he teaches down at Caltech, and I'm like, if anybody knows how a time machine would work, it's gonna be Sean. So I get on the phone with Sean, I'm like, fired up, and I'm like, okay, how am I gonna do it? And he's like, No. (laughs) He actually, like, he kind of, he was nice. He didn't actually completely laugh at me, but he said, look, I mean, there's no such thing as time travel. It's never going to happen. It's just not a thing. It's not a thing in physics. It's not a thing in science. Um, and so we started talking a little bit more about how I could do it, because at that point, I was kind of all in on the whole time travel thing. I wasn't going to just yank that out of my story and be like, okay, I have to stick to something scientific. Um, what can physics give me? Um, so he did, in fact, give me wormholes. He said, fine, use wormholes. That's vaguely plausible. Um, but what he, what he re- and so there are wormholes, and I'll, I'll read you a little sec- a section about that. But... Um, What he really did that was helpful and helpful in the world building for me was he was like, look, you can have something that is fantasy, like time travel, but have scientists respond to it the way a scientist would. And he said, you know, look, you, you can have realistic science that's built around something that seems wildly implausible and that we don't understand. Um, And that was really um, a great way for me to kind of start out thinking about this because um, there are really, in our world now, there's kind of two types of science. There's discovery science, which is what this time machine is part of and what physics are part of. And then there's sort of innovation science, which is like technology. It's like, that is the classic realm of the time travel stories, innovation science, right? A dude goes down into his basement and builds a time machine, right? That's the classic tale. Well, I wanted to write a story about discovery science, about scientists exploring something that they didn't understand, that didn't make sense, And so that's what brings me to Flin Flon, Manitoba. This is the time machine right here. Um, And it's because in my universe, I wanted the time machines to fit into the way discovery sciences have evolved. And so my model was astronomy. So if you think about the history of astronomy, which eventually becomes astrophysics, and that's why Sean Carroll has a job, It starts out as people just sort of looking at the sky and recording where the celestial bodies are. They don't know what those bodies are, but they they start to realize that they, you know, have predictable patterns. You can follow them to get directions. Um, And then over time, it evolves into a kind of mystical, uh, you know, system. And eventually, you know, somewhere in the West, somewhere around the 18th century, people start saying, wait a minute, this could be science. Um, and they start using scientific instruments more, uh, more commonly to examine these heavenly bodies, and eventually we get astronomy. But astronomy starts out as just a bunch of people staring at stars. And so I said, all right, I love geology. Here's a thing that humans have been doing for a really long time. They've been pounding rocks together. It's very plausible that if you had a time machine that was a naturally occurring device in a rock At some point, some human is gonna pound on that rock and activate the machine. So that's how my machines work, is that you go to a shield rock formation like this in Manitoba, this is on the Canadian shield, this is good bedrock, um, shield rock, Um, and if you pound on it in the right way, you open up a wormhole. And the wormholes, as far as we know, only go to the past. Um, There are some hints in the book that maybe some people have figured out that they can go both ways, but they can only go to the past as far as we know. Um, and I, and so humans have been playing around with these machines since, well, we don't know how long, since the Paleolithic, since we're playing around with lithics, right? And so there's early, um, very early uh, writings from classical antiquity um, centered around the city of Petra, because you got to have Petra in here because it's an amazing city made out of, um, ancient Shield Rock formation, and uh, and of course it's in I think it's in an Indiana Jones movie. I don't know. Anyway, so there's a um, an ancient city there, and people discover a time machine, and so they start writing about it thousands and thousands of years ago. Um, and it's only in you know the last couple hundred years that people like Tess, my character, um, have started to treat time travel as a science instead of just like opening a magical portal into somewhere. Um, so. One of the things that I really wanted to get at was like I said, that that these time machines would fit into a kind of a realistic way of thinking about how scientists would approach something that kind of made no sense and that we didn't understand this kind of um, discovery science. And I also wanted with that to kind of capture um, what it is about science that fills us with awe. Because when we talk about things being awe-inspiring in science, looking up into the sky and wondering about it, or looking into the cells of our bodies and wondering how the frick that chromosomes actually work, you know, those are moments of awe and wonder because we don't understand how they work yet. We will figure it out, I, I hope. Um, and so I'm gonna read you just a short little bit where Tess is going into the time machine that's at Flin Flon. the Flon is the name of a real place, by the way. Um, it's a mining town. and It's named after a character in a science fiction novel. So Tess is at Flin Flon, and, um, and this is what happens. I stood inside a vast hangar, ceiling so high that it sometimes generated its own puffs of cloud and misty rain. The floor was pure Canadian shield bedrock, a piebald of red and gray veined with white covered in a few patches of hard scrabble lichen. Here, the Earth's crust had endured virtually unchanged for over three billion years, studded with metal deposits and ambiguous Cambrian fossils. The five known machines had all been found in places like this, their control interfaces embedded in rock that originated before life evolved on land. Facing me was a row of refrigerator-sized server racks connected by fat wires to bulky CRT monitors on desks. She's in 1992, by the way. She's traveling back to her home time in 2022. So there's very ancient technology embedded in the rock and then semi-ancient technology surrounding her. Fat wires connected to bulky CRT monitors on desks cameras on metal stalks, and something that looked like the severed head of a traffic light whose color signals had been replaced with atmospheric sensors. A couple of texts typed on rugged keyboards, booting up the six tappers arranged in a circle around me. Half a billion years ago, these machines had a sophisticated command interface made from what geoscientists called the ring and the canopy, But now, all that was left was the rocky floor. The tappers, invented in the 19th century and refined in decades since, were crude, limited versions of what those old interfaces must have been. They looked like low steel tables punctuated by dozens of pistons, now moving up and down in a test pattern. Essentially, the tapper was a reconfigurable set of padded hammers like those inside a piano. They'd bang out a pattern on the rock. That pattern programmed the interface, and the interface would open a stable wormhole between the present and the traveler's chosen destination in the past. With these humble devices, we manipulated the fabric of the cosmos. Geoscientists barely understood the machines better than the first humans to describe them in writing thousands of years ago. Sure, we could control the exit date more precisely than our Bronze Age ancestors, Our tappers could produce complex rhythms that were accurate to the microsecond, so that was progress. We knew each machine consisted of an interface within the rock, though so far our instruments could not detect anything in the rock other than the expected elements. Then there was a wormhole that came from somewhere. Sadly, our biggest breakthrough was probably that we understood the machine's behavior in the context of geology rather than magic. Even after thousands of years of using them, we still didn't know much about how they worked, let alone why. So, she's about to enter the wormhole. She's uh, not sure how this machine works, but she's still using it. And again, this is the hallmark of discovery science. It's very ambiguous, you know, these are characters who are playing around with machines and with technologies that They kind of know what to do with, and it's sort of the same, like I said, as cosmology is now, or a lot of medicine is now, where we're kind of poking around and we're like, okay, it seems to work, we're not sure why. Um, So once I honed in on that idea of um, discovery science and the kind of awe and ambiguity in it, um, I did go out to get a second opinion on whether time machines could work Uh, because I was just wanted to check, just be sure. So I talked to a physicist named Adam Becker, and um, he told me something that I thought was super great and was very formative in creating this novel, and he said, look, time machines are not scientific devices. They're literary devices. Um, Which is to say, I had to go outside the realm of science to think about them. I had to kind of go into the realm of culture and history to kind of think about how I would fuel the action in this book. Um, and this is why the ambiguity of discovery science is so important because culture and history and literary devices, those are the realm of ambiguity. Those are areas, those are um, types of uh, systems that we use to talk about things that are ambiguous, you know, how history unfolds, how society works. Uh, it's a pretty, um, you can't just do repeatable tests on it and get the same result over and over again. It's a little frustrating. But luckily, I have a degree (laughs) in this. Um, I actually got my PhD in um, an interdisciplinary field that kind of straddled the line between social science and the humanities. So I have been exposed to an extremely large amount of literary theory. So I felt that I was up to the task. Um, And so what I did was... I changed my focus away from looking just at the kind of the physics and the science, although there's plenty of that. There's lots of wormhole action, and thought about how is it that people intervene in history? What is it that thinkers have told us over time about if you wanted to go back in time, you have your time machine, we've got them all over, well, we have five of them, but we, we have one up in, in Canada. Um, what would you do to go back and change things? So Of course, over time, my geologists have been doing this, and they've accumulated a lot of data, and it turns out there's only certain things you can do. Um, And there's a big debate between two groups of travelers who um, are basically kind of reiterating some of the debates we have in a very boiled down form in 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 history about how historical change happens. How do you actually make a change? Um, So there's some who believe in the great man theory, which is that you can target certain key individuals, like John Connor, for example, um, or Hitler, um, and if you take them out, you'll change history, right? Just kill that white guy and suddenly everybody's free. Um, But then there's another school of thought um, that Tess, my character, belongs to who believe in collective action. And they think the only way that history can really change, the only way you can make a difference, is if you actually form a community or you join a community of people and that that community uh, builds up over time and that the mass of people are what changes history. And so they've kind of come to the conclusion after years of, of research that you can't kill Hitler and change history because you just get like Bitler or Zittler or Mittler because Hitler isn't a special guy. He's just the face of a movement. He's part of a movement of white supremacy that swept through Europe. Um, just the way now we have a lot of politicians who are kind of, you know, part of a new movement of white supremacy that's sweeping across the Europe and, and the United States. And so my character Tess has to figure out a way to um, change history by somehow engaging in collective action and finding a way to do that. And I was really influenced by um, L.A. Kaufman's book, Direct Action, which came out a few years ago. She's been heavily involved in activist movements, and she wrote this great little short book, super highly recommended, that's just about... How do movements work? And how do you change things by having a protest? And why does a protest work? Um, She really starts from some basic fundamental questions about, like, you know, that level. Um, So from there, I got to my central metaphor in the book, which is that um, history is not uh, a... uh, history is not something that we can intervene in scientifically. We have to um, engage in what's basically an edit war. And so the characters in the book are fighting an edit war over the timeline. And they actually refer to it in those terms. Um, Again, it's sort of a literary metaphor. It's taken from Wikipedia. Um, And when they go back in time and they change things, they call it making an edit. Um, And, of course, they're fighting against a group who's reverting their edits. Um, And so they're editing and reverting. And then there's sometimes... Merging conflicts, um, and so you will if you read the book, you will find out what the merging conflicts do to you. It's not pretty, um, but they happen um, and so it allowed me to sort of think about how how history gets changed to come up with a metaphor that wasn't just a scientific way of looking at it but a kind of you know a more ambiguous way of looking at it. you know an edit war is is something that you know we're Uh, The terms are constantly shifting, people are constantly revising, um, and I think it's a great uh, metaphor for basically how we experience history and how we experience memory. Um, So in order to build up this book into um, the full kind of scope beyond just these kind of fundamentals, um, I had to sort of tee up a problem in history. And so as I sort of mentioned before, Uh, there's a a group of um, activists who are traveling through time who are deleting uh, women's reproductive rights from history. Um, They're editing history. And Tess and her friends are trying to revert those edits or maybe make new edits. They're not really sure how they're going to do it. Um, But at the same time, I had to think about um, how would I kind of center this around like a personal problem for my characters? Um, And so... I'm not gonna read you this section because I wanna kind of talk to you more about the fun history, Um, but I will just sum up for you that the sort of central problem that the characters are dealing with is that they're living in a present day, which for them is 2022, um, where women no longer have the right to get an abortion in the United States. Uh, But at the same time, the character Beth uh, is living in her own personal kind of repercussions of that Uh, because she and her friends, um, you know, sometimes this happens when you're living in Irvine and you're a punk rock girl. Sometimes you just start murdering guys. Um, Especially, well, exclusively men who are rapists and molesters of teenage girls. So Beth and her friends, especially her friend Lizzie, uh, start murdering guys. And they're doing it kind of in the name of, like, riot girl feminism. They're really interested in in being, you know, feminist activists in their own way. Uh, Meanwhile, Beth is trying to... Meanwhile, Tess is, of course, trying to change the past by not murdering anyone. Um, But so the problem that I sort of teed up for this story was, um, first of all, how do you change history? But also, how do you deal with the repercussions of... Um, living in a dark timeline, you know, because suddenly we have this problem where teenage girls are taking justice into their own hands and murdering people, and I don't need to tell you that, like, murder is wrong, right, we all know that murder is wrong, so there's a bit of a moral problem there. So when Tess, our time traveler, goes back in time, she's thinking about two problems. First there's the problem of, like, how do I get these dudes to stop deleting, you know, reproductive rights from the timeline, but also, How do I prevent women from wanting to murder people to get revenge for all the terrible things that are happening to them? Because those are both problems. You know, it's actually, like I said, it turns out it's actually not cool to murder guys even if they're rapists and bad dudes. You really should do like what Spider-Man does, right? Bring them to prison. Um, Turn them into the police, right? It's what Batman does too. It's like standard, you know, logic. (laughs) Um, So anyway, I have this problem, and so you always end up having to go back further in history than you think to solve a problem. So I went back to the 19th century to think about how you might get an alternate history where American women didn't have access to abortion. And it all turned out to have a lot to do with Anthony Comstock, Now, Anthony Comstock was a real guy. I'm about to tell you real history. This is not alternate history. This all actually happened, unbelievably. So Anthony Comstock was a moralist uh, who was uh, very, very famous in the 19th century for going after people who were sending obscene material through the mail. Um, He was basically kind of a self-appointed... Um, arbiter of moral ideas, and he managed to get a lot of rich dudes in New York to support his cause, and he started his career at the YMCA, which used to be an activist organization litigating on behalf of um, Christian moralists. So what Comstock was most concerned about was pornography and sex toys, because this is in the kind of the late 19th century when rubber starts to be mass-produced. So dildos, especially mail-order dildos, were very, very popular. So Comstock, in order to prove that we have this terrible problem with obscenity going through the mail, starts ordering a lot of pornography and dildos to come to him at the YMCA. So he gets about a steamer trunk full, and, um, you know, just just for research purposes, um, goes to Washington DC and uh, lobbies um, Congress to make new laws um, governing sending obscene materials through the mail. He's saying, you know, this is endangering children, this is really terrible, and by the way, he says, there's another kind of obscenity that we need to regulate because there's all of these women who are sending information through the mail about birth control and abortion and reproductive health. And that is also obscene, because they're talking about sex. Um, But these were, of course, women who were feminists and who were writing newsletters to each other about reproductive health and how to prevent pregnancies and how to get rid of unwanted pregnancies. But he just lumped them all in with these other kinds of material that were much more kind of well-known as obscene materials. So Congress, uh, several members of Congress come and look in the steamer trunk and hang out with Anthony for a little while, and they check out the dildos, and they check out the porn, and they're like, yes, indeed, this is all very bad. And within a few days, legislation is introduced and passed. These become known as the Comstock laws, and the Comstock laws forbid sending obscene material through the mail, including any information about birth control, sex toys, or abortion. So... He specifically wrapped up feminists in his target group that he's going after. Um, So the result of this is that a lot of feminists in the era uh, who are writing newsletters about birth control start getting arrested for obscenity. Um, And they're given incredibly long prison terms. And several of them commit suicide instead of going to prison as a protest. Uh, which Comstock starts bragging about in his speeches and saying, you know, six more women committed suicide, you know, more more power to us. Um, At this point, the YMCA has cut him loose. Um, He's just uh, working on his own, uh, but he's being funded by a lot of wealthy people, so he's still quite powerful. Um, And he continues to kind of set the tone for what anti-feminist rhetoric is going to be. So his career in our world, in our timeline takes a turn for the worse when he goes to the World's Fair in 1893, uh, the Columbian Exposition. It was the first World's Fair. It was held in Chicago. And it was also the first time that people in the United States had seen something that was called the Danse du Ventre, belly dancing. We have a belly dancer up there in the middle. She was a performer at the Algerian Theater. Um, That was one of the... uh, Uh, more popular attractions at the World's Fair. So, I'll tell you a tiny bit about the World's Fair and then I'll tell you what Anthony did. So, at the World's Fair, there's the White City, which you guys have probably all heard about. You've probably heard about this book, The Devil in the White City, where there's some, the whole book is all about how there's like a dude killing women. Um, There's only women killing men in my book, so we don't have that guy in my book. And the White City was, um, you know, the very beautiful part of the World's Fair that was devoted to um, educating people about science and teaching them about new technologies, including like the Dynamo, which was gonna transform the world um, with electricity. Um, But there was another part of the World's Fair, the part that actually made money and that people actually went to, which was called the Midway. And the Midway was a long park that kind of stuck out like a sort of like a tongue from the from the white city. Um, and it was full of attractions like the Algerian theater. Like here you can see it's a one of the other attractions was called the Streets of Cairo. And it was a big reproduction of like of various um, like the Luxor Temple and plinths from, from uh, ancient Egypt. And it was kind of like Disneyland. And in fact, um, one of Disney's relatives actually worked there. So he, Walt Disney may have um, kind of heard some tips about how to do stuff like this. Um, and they had a lot of acts with belly dancers in them because a lot of these theaters uh, were trying to uh, bring sort of North African culture to the US. Um, And they were actually performers who were from North Africa. Belly dancing is a kind of, it's like a a fusion of a bunch of different kind of um, native dances from various parts of North Africa. It's not a real kind of ethnic dance, it's just a sort of fusion. Um, But to Americans, at the time, it was pretty darn racy. Uh, Mark Twain wrote about how he almost had a heart attack watching them. Uh, And so Comstock was like, I am gonna shut this shit down. So he goes from New York, to Chicago, gets a court order to shut down the Midway. Um, He's he's targeting especially one place called the Persian Palace where they had these danse du ventre ladies, but he's trying to shut down every single attraction. And so he gets the court order, and like I said, this is is making tons of money for the city of Chicago. No Chicago judge is gonna let this happen because they're making so much cash. there's an immediate injunction. He's unable to do it. He totally loses, and he looks like a fool. And so then the newspapers start making fun of him. So that's what happens in our timeline. That's kind of the beginning of the end of Anthony Comstock's hold on America's imagination, except for the fact that Comstock laws stayed on the books until, like, the 1970s in a lot of places. Um, But in my novel, I created an alternate timeline. And here's what I did just to be mean and sneaky. So... I wanted to think about an alternate history where um, women's history was centered instead of your standard kind of like, what was the outcome of World War II? What was the outcome of the Civil War? So instead of caring about the outcome of the Civil War in terms of like which group of white guys with guns won, um, I was interested in what happened afterwards during the arguments over who would get to vote. So there was this big question in the wake of the Civil War over whether black people would get the vote, whether freed slaves would get the vote, whether you had to be literate to get the vote, and also would women get the vote? And there'd been a long-running suffrage movement for women by that time for decades. Um, In fact, the first woman who ran for president ran in 1872, that was Victoria Woodhull. She also was the first um, female Wall Street broker. Um, She was great, she had her own newspaper called Woodhull's Quarterly. and uh, so she ran for president unsuccessfully. At any rate, um, in my alternate history, instead of freed slaves getting the vote but women not getting the vote until 1919, they all get the vote at the same time. So women start voting in 1870, and one of the first things that they do is they elect Harriet Tubman, the great Civil War hero, uh, as to, a, to the Senate. So instead of... Um, having uh, Susan B. Anthony as the great hero of the women's movement, it's Harriet Tubman. And that really changes a lot of things. And I mean, partly it changes feminism itself. Um, it changes the way the nation understands women's power. Um, and it results in a backlash. Just the way history works, right? So. Women get more rights earlier, but then there's a stronger backlash against women. And so Comstock manages to shut down the midway. And as a result, his laws get stronger, and hit the injunction again in the um, sending information through the mail about abortion remains illegal. Women who advocate for abortion and birth control are sent to prison. And so we never get reproductive rights in the United States. Women get to vote, earlier and better, but we don't get to have abortions or any kind of re- reproductive health care. So I wanted to have a history that felt kind of rich and um, uh, complicated, you know, ambiguous, um, so that it wasn't just like, and then we got the vote and everything was awesome. Um, one of the other things that happens as a result of this um, uh, transformation in history is that feminist culture changes. This is another thing that I think is funny that it never gets treated in alternate histories. Like we endlessly, I don't wanna just keep picking on Civil War novels, but we endlessly kind of go back to the Civil War and say like, well, what would happen if this happened? What would happen if this person won or this person wasn't a general? Um, But we never ask questions like, what would happen if feminism was totally different? Um, So, what if, what if feminism were started by a woman of color who had been a slave? Like how would that change the way feminism works? Um, And so one of the really um, weird outcomes of this or unexpected outcomes of this is that the riot girl scene in the 1990s winds up being really different. Um, So if you recall from your history of punk rock, In the 1990s, the Riot Grrrl scene was, um, you know, women who were entering the punk scene, they were playing loud uh, music, and there were a lot of uh, women of color involved in local scenes in L.A. and here, where I lived. But the bands that became popular were almost all fronted by white women. And that was just because we live in a culture where feminism, the history of feminism, is kind of associated with white women. It hasn't really had... Um, It hadn't, especially in the 1990s, really met the idea of intersectionality, which now seems so obvious to all of us. Um, So, as a result of Harriet Tubman being elected, in 1992, the band Grape Ape that both Beth and Tess love is a band of Latinas from L.A. who get to be super big and super influential and they're women of color, and they sing about racial issues, they sing about immigration and injustice. Um, And so even though we've gotten this more conservative culture where women don't have reproductive rights, we have a way more awesome and progressive and badass punk rock scene. So thanks you to Harriet Tubman. Thank you, Senator Harriet Tubman. so I wanted to um, end by with just a couple of final thoughts before we open it up for conversation, um, which is that part of what I was trying to do uh, with this book was kind of question this notion that we all, this, this phrase that we've all heard, which is that, um, you know, if we forget history, uh, we're doomed to repeat it. I don't actually think that is really the issue. Um, I think the issue is that we don't imagine revisiting history and revising it, that we don't go back and rethink our history. And I think part of the reason why it's great to have a book about time travel that's set in an alternate timeline is that it reminds us that we're always changing the past. It gives me and gives you as readers a way of thinking about what does it mean to be changing history? Because... Um, Now, historians, actual real historians, not fake ones in my book, really buy into this idea that all of history is kind of revisionist history, especially when we're constantly excavating new stories from history, because history isn't written by winners exclusively. History is written by everybody. And the more expansive our view of history is, the more voices we have, the more people that we have telling that history, uh, the more history changes. And so um, it's not really about not repeating history, it's about looking at history from another perspective, like from the perspective of belly dancers or from the perspective of feminists or somebody who ran for president in 1873 even though she couldn't vote. Um, and there's a really strong, I think, conservative idea that we shouldn't touch history. I think the whole phrase, make America great again, is kind of about that. It's about saying, look, there was a history that America had, an untouched, unrevised history. We need to go back to that, and a time travel story, at its best, always says, you know, make history expansive. No, don't make it something that it already was. Don't keep going back to that same history. You know, go back to new histories. Learn about new perspectives. Um, and so uh, my next book, I'm gonna give you a quick sneak peek, is a nonfiction book about archeology span where I am gonna be looking at alternate histories um, or alternative voices in history. Real histories, but alternative voices in history. Um, this is a cover that you're not supposed to be seeing, so. <laughs> Um, but this is the cover of my next book and um, there will be something that isn't just a Greek quote at the bottom, which I love. Um, I went to a bunch of different cities um, and, uh, and looked at them from the perspective of ordinary people who lived there. So I actually talked to an archaeologist who said to me, you know, fuck Julius Caesar. Like, we don't care about him anymore. We want to know about the people who ran the bars. We want to know about the people who were prostitutes. Uh, we want to know about the people who were slaves. Um, and so that was what I looked for in the four cities that I talk about in the book. Um, and I even did some excavating there um, where I was like wearing about 40 layers of sunscreen and I look really great. Um, so uh, so in the end, I think maybe we should just start talking and I don't need to play the video, I don't know. Do you guys wanna see a little bit of grape ape? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right, so um, in order to make this alternate history come to life, um, I got some uh, friends of mine who are very talented musicians and videographers to write and perform a Great ape song. So this, the lyrics to this song appear in the book in a slightly different form than they appear in this song um, because that's how it is, right? Like sometimes you sing the song differently, right? Um, and so here's a little taste of Great We're just going to play you a little bit from the beginning of the video. Wait, one second. Wait. No, <laughs> we made them up. <laughs> um, no, they are not, but I wish they were. They were, you know, they're from an alternate history where women of color, I mean, women of color in my alternate history led some of the most popular Riot girl bands in the 90s. So um, this is a band that, um, yeah, like I made it up. My friend Desi Lopez, who's an amazing performer, uh, wrote the music, um, and um, yeah, Here you go. Wait, did it work? Okay.
1: y'all so is is there soundcloud for "Grape babe can we where is like it's on youtube it's on youtube th- okay. so
0: search for "Grape babe when's
1: the vinyl come out man <laughs> we're time traveled already back to vinyl come on so
0: there's a bunch of awesome people in this video who are cool feminists from the bay area that you might recognize and uh let's talk
1: yeah and, and uh a shout out to ariel uh, Waldman. Waldman, who's, who is one of the very first speakers here at the Interval. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. yeah,
0: no, she's there wearing the NASA as fuck t-shirt, the which I thought was yeah, appropriate for alternate history riot girls. Oh.
1: <laughs> Thank you. That's a big round of applause. <laughs> so much to talk about. We're going to have uh, a microphone going around in a second. We'll, we'll talk for uh, a little bit first. Um, let's see. Let's um, see. One, one quick, just to sort of uh, check in on Otto, because uh, we talked about this, and but this is sort of your vision. Do you want to... Uh, this is
0: my... Yeah, my vision. <laughs> um, so this is... Uh, I just...
1: Otto, our, our chalkboard drawing machine, if you're not familiar so with it. So
0: here you can see in the middle of Wormhole, um, and on the right-hand side is the TARDIS. Does everybody know what the TARDIS is? It's a time machine. Doctor Who. It actually... It, the doctor from Doctor Who rides around and it. it goes through time and space, which makes things much more interesting. And then on this side, we just see rocks and water, which, of course, is what my time machine is made of.
1: And, and so the, the device, the, the actual uh, mechanism for time travel, if I get this right, they, they, they go in and they kind of bang on the rocks? Yeah. And it's something about the rhythm that they're doing.
0: It's something about the rhythm, and which of course goes into kind of music again, uh-huh. and how this is kind of a book about. So, music. so what I'm
1: taking away is that math rock is time travel. Is that yes. okay? Good.
0: Anything with a beat, you okay. know, like okay. and the more complex the beat, the better. Right. So, like right. techno so, is probably like the right. ultimate. Right. So, if
1: they shift into six, forget about it. Yeah, it's just it's, on another. We're gonna.
0: Yeah. We'll find out.
1: And and are you um, and. And we're talking. We we talked a little bit about it because you've you've done kind of a deeper dive into the the history of you know the different types of. Uh, what are sort of the flavors of time travel sci-fi? Because this your alternative timeline style uh, time travel, right? And there and there are, there are other ones. Like, There's right?
0: like a ton of different kinds. Um, there's of course the standard type where it's a guy in his basement, making, white guy in a
1: basement, yeah, yeah,
0: making a DeLorean or something like that. Uh, and then there's of course, well, there's the two primary branches of time travel. There's the single universe and the multiverse types. I chose a single universe, which is kind of in the style of Terminator or Back to the Future, where if you go into the past and change something, it affects the future that you are returning to. Um, and I wanted to do that because I wanted there to be consequences for my characters, but in the multiverse version, you go back in time and you change something and you branch a new universe, right? So you might have like a zillion universes, kind of like in like the Transformers universe or something like that, uh, or like maybe the Marvel universe where there's like a million alternate timelines. Um, And then I think there's, uh, like I said, I mean, within that, if you have the kind of single universe, as I kind of hinted at, There are stories where changing the past is really, really bad. Uh, Sort of the butterfly effect idea that if you just step on a butterfly in the Cretaceous period, if you come back to the present day, some kind of fascist will have become president. Um, That's literally what happens in the original Ray Bradbury story where the butterfly effect idea comes out of. It's called The Sound of Thunder. Um, And then there's the idea that, like in my book, where... Changing the past is actually really hard, and so kind of defeating Anthony Comstock for my characters becomes incredibly difficult, it takes years, and it's it's not at all obvious how to change history. You can't just step on a butterfly, or as I said, you can't shoot Hitler um, or John Connor, so.
1: So um, I'd just like to take this quick moment to introduce a radical conspiracy theory. Um, Oh, good. So, <laughs> so you are I, you you. Well, we have uh, actually. Let's do a big shout out to Borderlands Books, uh, a great indie <laughs> local, fantastic bookstore, who have a bunch of your books, and we have your nonfiction work here as uh-huh. well. I'm getting the conspiracy theory. Don't I didn't forget about it. Um, so, so this is this is one of your nonfiction books. Do you want to say? Uh,
0: Sure. This is a non. This is my first um, major nonfiction book called "Scatter, Adapt, and Remember." Uh, it's about mass extinction and um, the evidence that humans will survive the next mass extinction. It might not be a great survival, uh, but what that survival would look like and how we could kind of make it a little bit better than living in caves eating bugs.
1: And and then we also have uh, autonomous, which was your your last and award-winning uh, novel and. Um, so, so all these books are back there and they're all signed and you'll be sticking around yep. and, and uh, personalizing them as well. But uh, the radical conspiracy theory, which you've all been waiting for, is yes. uh, that uh, since you're writing both nonfiction and science fiction, it is completely possible and consistent that these science fiction novels might actually be histories, and that in fact we are living inside, and so Grape Ape may be a band that actually will exist in about three months' time or something once that edit gets made. Is, is, that, well, is that possible? Is, is, is this reality as we've experienced it consistent with the premise, the world that you've built In your book.
0: No. Well, you'd have to... Okay, in order for Grape Ape to exist, you would have to have gone back and changed the 19th century, right? Uh Because remember, we have to change the whole history of feminism in order to get a riot girl movement where women of color are leading the most popular bands. So you could do it if you went back, you know, over 100 years Uh and, you know, organized with feminists in the late 19th century. So that could happen. Okay, And if it did happen we would have had a better Riot girl scene. Uh-huh. Um, one of the other things that changes in my in my timeline by the way is that Tim Burton made Wonder Woman movies in the 90s instead of Batman movies, which would mean that by now we'd be on like the third iteration of the Wonder Woman movies and uh-huh. we'd finally have like a black Wonder Woman and things would be so awesome. So
1: so is, the, is there a, is there a 60s version of Wonder Woman a la Batman that's uh, like the Adam West uh, Batman cuz I would like to see that. It seems we'd like to really see. That's a really good question. Right here. Yeah, okay. yeah, okay. Maybe it's, yeah, and and so is there a sequel planned, and can it be that? That's the next <laughs> question. Um, and, and I'm curious about, uh, because, uh, so with something like this, you're obviously, uh, we talked about world building a little bit the last time you were here. I mean, you're building more world than actually gets showcased in this book. So I'm yes. always kind of curious with something like this, what's on the cutting room floor? And And in particular, maybe, on Harriet Tubman, did you go deep into... Like what her policies were, what, what she what what uh, what things were affected that led to this. Or what what are some of your favorite things that are outside what we actually will learn in the novel? Uh, that that uh, that you built into the world? Anything you can tantalize um, us with? I mean,
0: definitely there is some stuff about Harriet Tubman which doesn't come up that much. Mm-hmm. She, we don't ever, we actually meet Comstock briefly. We don't ever meet Harriet Tubman, although one of the characters does go back to the 19th century and campaign for her. So we kind of meet the people who were on the campaign trail and like we learn about some of her policies. But... We also don't learn about the other time machines very much. Um, The characters do go visit the first time machine ever discovered at Petra, uh, which winds up being really interesting because there's lots of features of that time machine. where people can kind of stash written documents nearby and they will uh, endure even when the timeline changes. So it's the only place where we have records of timelines that have been deleted. Uh, Although, of course, you never know if they're true or not because people might make shit up and then be like, oh yeah, that was deleted. Um, But we used to have really great animal rights, but now we don't. Um, So they don't ever know for sure if those records. But so anyway, so we don't know a lot about the other machines. There's one in Australia, there's one at Timbuktu. Um, We don't learn about that. Um, And there is one chapter that's on the cutting room floor that I might turn into a short story Mm -hmm. where um, the group of feminists that Tess works with who are called the Daughters of Harriet are all going back on their own missions. So there's a couple chapters in the book where we get like their side missions. And there's one side mission that I cut where a woman goes back to Stanford in the 1950s to an AI lab that's being run by this monstrous uh, misogynist guy who is, harassing one of the women in his lab. And because he's harassing her so much, she's going to leave the lab and leave AI and basically destroy the future of computing. And so she has to kind of go back and make sure that this doesn't happen and that this woman manages to stay in the field. Um, And it may or may not be based on an actual Stanford professor, I don't know. (laughs) composite character.
1: I'm I'm totally going to Petra and looking for grape ape demos that may have been stashed.
0: Yes. (laughs) Totally seems plausible
1: to me. I'm still sticking to this. Um, And we're going to have a a mic going around here and and we're going to have we have prizes for people that ask questions. Is that right?
0: We do. If you ask a question you will get a patch that says we're in the wrong timeline. (laughs) You can sew it onto your um, skin or your clothing, or <laughs> onto your stuffed animals, or um, people that you don't like.
1: I'm, I'm going to get, and, and before we get to audience question, gonna, I mean, I want to dive in one more with yeah. you because we've known each other a long time. It's I know. great, it like running around in the '90s, and it's so exciting to see everything that you're doing. Um, you've had this really interesting career. You are writing nonfiction. Uh, you're writing science journalism with Ars Technica, etc. Um, and but also you are experiencing this change in media as all this you know golden age of television whatever all the rise of the blogs the you know the, the death of the blogs all these things <laughs> yes <laughs> I, i'd love for you to talk a little bit about are, uh, anybody out there fans of io9.com the <laughs> well then a lot of you are going to be tomorrow because uh so so you and Charlie Jane started, can you tell us the story? Because I don't think I know the story of how io9 actually started. And, and I guess first you do a better job of saying, what, what was the mission state of io9 and how did it all begin?
0: Um, so it started when um, I was working at Wired, um, at, you know, at the print magazine. So that was how ancient this was. Um, and I had before that, I had been working at the San Francisco Bay Guardian. So I was kind of a printy person. Um, but I had definitely done some online work. And so um, the managing editor of Gawker Media contacted me and I thought, you know, he said, oh, I want to talk to you about doing some work. Um, This is Lockhart Steele who wound up founding Curbed later. So if you read Curbed, um, you can tell Lockhart I sent you. Um, So he said, yeah, come talk to me. And I thought he was going to make kind of overtures to me about writing for Valleywag, which I really didn't like, um, and I was kind of I was a little dubious, so I got stoned before I went to the meeting um, and because it was, whatever and, and, it was, and
1: Valleywag, the gossip mag of Sil- of Silicon Valley a, a Yeah, there's dark a lot chapter of, indeed Yeah, it was a
0: dark chapter in, in Gawker Media's history in the 90s, too yeah um, so, uh, so I was not fully prepared when, they, when he said to me I.E. Um, stoned, yes. Yeah, I was not fully prepared <laughs> Uh, to, to expect that he would say, oh, actually, we're trying to start a science fiction blog, and we'd love for you guys to work on it, or for you to work on it, not you guys, because it was just me at that time. And uh, I was really excited about that idea, and I immediately said, well, what about combining... Because I was a science journalist, I am a science journalist. I said, what about combining science reporting, like really good science reporting, with uh, news about science fiction and reviews and bring in people who are interested in the science part but might be kind of fiction curious and people who are really into the fiction but like would really love to learn more about the actual science. And so that became, after many, many months of arguments and debates, that became um, our editorial mandate. And my first hire was Charlie Jane Anders who is now an incredibly accomplished science fiction writer and critic. And um, we spent like six months just doing this thing that they used to call at Gawker Media blogging in the dark, which just meant that we were literally blogging for the audience of our boss, Nick Denton, who would just periodically come by and just basically scream at us, um, but by text. Um, so it was like text yelling, um, "This is bad!" Um, so we were just bad for a really long time. And then when we launched, we had like six months of content, and people were like, "Holy shit! You know, where's where did this come from?" And um, and we were the last blog that was launched by Gawker Media, so we kind of we were the we were the um, the final nail in the well. That sounds bad. We were the we were the final property uh, in that family of blogs. And io9 is still going. You were the
1: last little balloon that went up. That yeah. Got- Yeah, we were the last
0: balloon. Pretty big balloon, though. It was a very popular site from the beginning. Um, And it's now part of Gizmodo. Um, And it was uh, really, I think the thing about it that was um, really the winning formula was that combination of having really good science reporting with really fun entertainment reporting. And it was funny because science journalists and scientists would always say to me like, oh, you know, the sugar coating of like, having all that pop culture is what's bringing people in. Uh, But actually behind the scenes, under the covers, all of the articles that were the most popular, that got the most views were all science articles. Those were the ones that really blew up the biggest that would get like millions of views. So who's to say what the sugar pill was? You know, like maybe it was the science bringing people in to learn more about time travel you know so it's hard to say
1: all right and uh we have do we have a mic out there do we have an audience okay so uh cool excellent you. our first patch I'll, uh,
0: i know would you like to be the patch deliverer i, I, I mean yeah.
1: <laughs> i do i do all the bits please thank okay, you for hey. asking a question
2: how's it going um i love your t-shirt
0: and Thanks. your talk was amazing and I love representing for la tigre yeah um Okay, so when you put the timeline up and 2022 abortion is illegal, that was very striking and frightening to me. Um, uh, did you do that to me on purpose? Like, did you did you do this? Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, like, what's this? Uh, how did you not? De- or how did you decide to make it so soon and not maybe like you know even 10 years in the future? Or well, because uh, in so in the in the novel. Um, the history has been changed for a long time. So because of the fact that women got the vote earlier, there's been this late 19th century backlash. So really the fact that abortion has remained illegal until 2022 is quite odd. It's almost like there's time travelers who are meddling with things. Um, and I will say, and this is not a spoiler, that um, you know, my approach to this novel changed while I was writing it. I was writing it, I just started writing it when Trump was elected And um, after the election and after watching how much changed so fast, um, I no longer really felt like it was realistic to have a book where I had sort of started out thinking my characters wouldn't change anything and everything would stay kind of crappy. And I was like, no, because I'm watching history change before my eyes. So they do succeed in changing the timeline. The feminists do um, have a, a kind of victory. I mean, of course, there's always more to do, and there's there's always going to be those guys who are messing around with the timeline, uh, working against them. Um, but the, it is a hopeful book, and so they are in a world where abortion is illegal, but they are able to change that. Um, and uh, you know, other things are lost, of course, but you know, they do they do win, kind of. <laughs>
1: And I'm going to get in a question from our online viewers, thanks to the folks that are watching from Here is
0: your online patch. Yes, (laughs) exactly.
1: We'll we'll post a GIF. Um, (laughs) uh, So the question is, uh, with no uh, name attached to it, but after researching writing this book, and as the science journalist you are, as well as a sci-fi writer, living here in space-time, how do you think it really works? Are there infinite parallel timelines? Is time travel possible? We're not gonna put you on the spot or anything. Is reality literally a story or narrative from some higher form of consciousness?
0: I think history is a story from human consciousness, so that's for sure. Uh, unfortunately, time travel does not exist. I. Been told now by two fairly prominent physicists that it's not possible. And, you know, I have Boring. faith in a lot of things, but science is kind of the main thing I have faith in. So I think it's probably true that we will never have literal time travel. But of course, we travel in our imaginations all the time. And part of the reason why I think we're drawn to time travel narratives is because of the fact that the process of learning about history is always a process of revising history. Because the more we understand it, the more we learn, the more history changes. And that changes our understanding of who we are. And so I think if there's any kind of intelligence at work, it's our intelligence as humans trying to figure out how we got here, who we are, um, how our problems started. Um, And I think one of the things i learned in researching this book is that you always have to go back a lot further than you think in order to figure out the root of a lot of the problems that we're dealing with. And I mean, sure, you can go back to like the dawn of humanity if you want. But in the modern age, you know, like I said when I was thinking about reproductive rights, I was like, wow, it really does start kind of far back. Like we think of you know Roe v. Wade and and you know, the 1960s as really this this turning point for reproductive rights. But it was really in like the 1860s and the 1870s when a lot of our ideas about, um, about reproduction and about uh, women's rights and then men's rights to control women's rights. That's where all that stuff comes from. And a lot of Comstock's rhetoric, uh, if you read his writing, it sounds a lot like what we're hearing today from men's rights activists. They could really, I mean, maybe they are reading Comstock. I don't know, but it's its pretty and, and startling. And remind
1: us again what, what his years are.
0: So Comstock is most active in... The, starting in like the late 1860s, and then he lives up until about uh, 1916. And in fact, he got into a huge, late in his life, his main focus was on trying to shut down Planned Parenthood, or the, the organization that became Planned Parenthood, uh, run by Margaret Sanger. And so he and Margaret Sanger were at, at odds. And the year after he died, the first Planned Parenthood uh, clinic opened. So... That was he cleared the way. <laughs> Sounds terrible, but
1: um, you just reminded me of something I don't know if you've seen and, and for folks that are enjoying this talk, another one of our talks you might like and the videos online was Carolyn winterer who's at Stanford did this talk about the the history of uh, or, uh, the, the history of deep time, the concept of deep time, which comes in the nineteenth century and and because of geological Discoveries, and suddenly we have new metaphors like the layering of our consciousness. This sort of like it, that's geological layers, and and it's an interesting thing because at the time, before television, before cinema, there there it was actually painting. It's the Hudson River Valley painters who are starting to show this these geological. Uh, uh, you know, configurations than in the rocks. And by focusing those and painting those details, that was the media by which those ideas were disseminating and it influenced psychology and all these other things too. Yeah, and,
0: so, and there's a reason why I brought geology into a book yeah. about time travel because I really wanted to kind of evoke that. And my characters do end up going back to the Ordovician period about half a billion years ago. So um, so if you read the book, you'll find out how to eat trilobites. Great. So that's just like that's my sales pitch, is basically, yeah.
2: All right, and we have another
1: audience question right here, please.
2: So first, I have a quick comment. Are you aware of Napoleon's quote that, what is history but a fable agreed upon?
0: Napoleon doesn't even exist in this alternate timeline. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> but it just shows about how history is yeah, yeah. whatever people say history exactly. is. Exactly. And I
0: mean, I think uh, that's a, a kind of more accurate version of history is written by the winners because in fact, right. it isn't always uh, written by the winners. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a story we tell ourselves.
2: So do you subscribe, you do not subscribe to the great man theory of history? For example, if Hitler had been killed at the end of World War I, and he was actually in the gun sights of a British soldier who is known by name and who did not pull the trigger only because his, Hitler was a messenger and he did not have a gun in his hand at the time. So the British soldier felt it would, wouldn't be fair play to actually shoot the guy
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, that he So you lived. thought
0: about this a lot.
2: Yeah, and so so if Hitler hadn't lived or if he had been killed then, right, you possibly still would have had Germany go into a very dark place in a very far-right you know, nationalist, even national socialist uh, position. But you probably wouldn't have had World War II and all the way it played out because World War II is largely based, at least in Europe, on Hitler and the decisions that he made, most of which were bad, which ultimately resulted in Germany actually losing the war.
0: Well, that's what you think because you're taking kind of a great man perspective and not looking at all the people around him who were advising him, all
1: of the influence. Well, influences no, he was—he was actually—he
2: was actually—he was, actually, was actually overruling his advisors. So, so well, his actually, his generals were actually advising whole, him to do different things sure, than he was actually, doing. But actually,
0: there is in fact a whole uh, body of research, not just about Hitler, yeah. but about history itself, sort of looking into. How do movements form? How does history change? Um, What causes people to uh, follow a particular leader, for example? Hitler is nothing without his followers, of course. So, I mean, he's just going to be a boring art student. And so the question that I was asking in this book um, was really how do you kind of balance out those two ideas? How do you think about the way movements and collectives change history? But there are these inflection points, right? Like Anthony Comstock is the big bad in my book and the characters have conversations about this where they're like one character um, who actually comes from very far in the future um, really does believe in the great man theory and she feels like all they have to do is murder Anthony Comstock and they're good. And my character Tess is like, no, first of all, murder is wrong and second of all, that's not how it works. And so they kind of, they wind up coming to an ambiguous place and again, that's part of the, the awe and wonder in history and, and in human behavior is that it's ambiguous. It's not just Hitler. It's not just the movement. It's some kind of combination. It's ineffable. We can't tease it all out. Um, and so they kind of have to do both. They kind of have to start a movement and they kind of have to figure out a way to get at Anthony Comstock, the person. And um, so I think... Ultimately, like I said, it's, it's a little of both. And, and again, you can't have a great man or a great woman or a great non-binary person or whatever without all of the people who make them that. They are only as good as their followers or their community. So... So the last
1: question is, uh, what are the four cities in your next book? <laughs> <laughs> four, the four cities, the, that's a great... Yeah, that is a good question. All right, yeah. in
0: my next book, The Four Cities Are... Çatalhöyük, which is a Neolithic city in central Turkey. It was about 9,000 years ago, and some people think it's one of the first cities. Some people say, no, it's not really a city. Um, It's ambiguous. Um, Pompeii. uh, Angkor, which is the site of the famous temple at Angkor Wat. um, And uh, Cahokia, which is an indigenous city uh, here in the United States. It's uh, in southern Illinois, across the river from St. Louis. Um, It's a beautiful mound city with big pyramids. Um, It's now a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So if you're in St. Louis, please do just check it out. Uh, Give a little money to the museum there. Um, And the premise of the book is just that these were all cities that were very central to their civilizations, and people abandoned them. And why did they abandon them? You think you know why they abandoned Pompeii, okay? But (laughs) you think you know, but there's more to it. It's complicated. Um, But yes, obviously, there's some some mitigating circumstances there. And
1: what's the timeline of your Four Cities book coming out? It's
0: Coming out in July. July. So yeah, it's done.
1: That's uh, the next one, 2020. Okay.
0: 2020. That's right. So yep.
1: And you also already have your next book for tour.
0: I do. You're yeah. So on I'm too. as soon as I on Monday when <laughs> I turn in the final edits for Four Lost Cities, um, they were actually due. Yesterday, but I got an extension. My editor was kind of annoyed. Don't tell
1: anyone she's out tonight, okay? Um,
0: And uh, no, I worked very hard on it all day. So let that be on the record. (laughs) Um, So so, yeah, so I've uh, signed a two-book deal with Tor. So I have two more novels coming out with them. The next one is going to be a multi-generational terraforming epic, um, which, because I'm me, is mostly going to be about um, water treaties and public transit. Um, But there will be a sentient flying train as a character. Um, So uh, I promise you that. Um, And then the book after that is gonna be, it's kind of inchoate, but it's gonna be a kaiju love story. So (laughs) it might not be very scientific. So the the book, The Terraformers, the terraforming book, that will be very hard science fiction. Kaiju love story, mm, probably not quite as, yeah. You'll
1: have to find out. <laughs> Annalie Newitz, big round of applause, everyone. Thank you. If you enjoyed this talk, we hope you'll subscribe to hear more. You might also like Long Now's other podcast, Seminars About Long-Term Thinking, with more than 200 more Long-Term Thinking Lectures, hosted by Stuart Brand. Subscribe to both at longnow.org podcast or wherever you like to listen.